Hi, welcome to another episode of the Leadership Enigma. Now, we are working very hard to try and meet the needs of the listeners, and you're now getting in contact with us and asking for certain themes to be spoken about, certain guests to come on, and something that has been raised not just by our listeners, and that's the question of sustainability. Is sustainability a differentiator? If so, how? How do we marry up profit and sustainability? Is it like hand in glove? And actually, is being a sustainable leader now a core competency for the modern day leader? So again, like always, I need someone far wiser than myself to have this conversation and shed some light over some of these questions. So come back to me just after this. Well, I have the wonderful Clark Murphy, who's a CEO and board advisor, but author also of sustainable leadership. So I have the right person. Don't miss this episode. Come back to me just now. During constant change, your leadership has never been more important to create a better and more inclusive world. You're listening to The Leadership Enigma, a podcast for the insatiably curious to explore the power of human-centered leadership to create real momentum for positive and sustainable change. Whether you're an entrepreneur, business owner, or corporate executive, each week we speak to global experts, academics, rising stars, ambitious upstarts, and disruptors as we discover that success leaves clues. Now, here's your host, Adam Pacifico. Well, there we go. It's a warm welcome to Clark. Clark Murphy, how are you, my friend? I'm very well. Thanks for having me, Adam. Glad to be here. No, it's great to have you here. Been looking forward to this one. Even in the intro, I, I noticed that I talk about sustainable change, and we are going to talk about the sustainable leader and sustainable leadership. But also in that introduction, I get to talk to an amazing array of eclectic guests. And Clark, I, I very briefly spoke about some of the things that you've done uh, over many years. But how would you describe the work you do, the journey that you've been on? You know, we, we help companies, institutions, foundations pick great leaders. We like to say we're improving the way the world is led. I think back in the day and start of my career, you followed the money. There's there's so much cash in the world right now where investors are looking for great leaders. Uh, so there's an abundance of, of money, but there's not an abundance of great leaders. And so the leadership business has actually become a quite a hot business, I would say, in the last decade. Now, you and I have been perhaps navigating the leadership development space or the leadership space for some years. Why do we not have the amount of good quality leaders after so many years of us working with organisations and so many leaders talking about this subject? Have we gone wrong somewhere, Clark? What is going on? Or has the world just changed so much and continuing to change, we can't keep up? Well, I, I think it's the latter more than the former. So two things. If you remember in, in about 22 years ago, McKinsey came out with a war for talent study that yeah. said over the next 30 years, it will be about talent because of the growth of, of the global economy, the demographics of birth and baby boomers retiring, whether it's the role of digital transformation, whether now it's automation, whether it's globalization and now you know to the changing world of nationalist tendencies, I think the world's changing so quickly. You know, if you were running a mall based retail, if you were, you know, trying to do things in the oil and gas space, if you're trying to do things in healthcare or home healthcare, I say to people in our firm that the reason we've grown so much in the last five or six years is we're in the transformation business, not the replacement business anymore. Gotcha. And what's been your passion for this space, working with uh, senior leaders, working with boards? Why? Why choose that as your path? 
Yeah. Um, listen, at the end of the day, boards are trying to figure out who to pick. I find it fascinating, particularly the cross-border work. I, I love working across border and spent nine years of my career in Europe with Russell Reynolds Associates. So for me, that's interesting. I think that we need to go from hundreds of sustainable leaders to tens of thousands. And I think boards of directors and private equity firms are now valuing sustainable competencies and track record much more highly than ever before. They're figuring it out. We're now doing CEO successions, though, though more in Europe than America, right. where the boards of directors are saying, I want to see a sustainable performance track record alongside the commercial performance track record. And they are one now. Now, Clark, let me ask, I hope not a, a too simplistic a question, but almost starting from the beginning, I hear the word sustainable and sustainability all the time. And I want to ask you the question, what actually do we mean by that? What actually is sustainability? Because I'm sure there are some myths around it as well, or some misconceptions. But in the work that you've done, uh, the book that you've written, which we'll come to, what is sustainability? Right. So, so I think of sustainability as the umbrella of the 17 sustainable development goals, which is around education, poverty, water, oceans, climate, um, and uh, the breadth of those, people tend to go straight to climate change. I was going to ask that. Just, it's just one of them. And the other thing is, I think ESG is, 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 a, is a, it's a measurement set of things, E, S, and G. It's become a hot button in yeah. American politics. And it's one piece. ESG is just a, a piece of sustainability. So we think of it as the broad umbrella largely defined as the 17 SDGs. And when we talk about the 17, just help leaders know, where are those coming from? So the SDGs were decided in 1998, 99, before the millennium, to say, uh, where do we want to make progress over 20 years? It's actually how this whole book began, but we'll come to that later. Uh, and it's tracking progress uh, against equitable education, diversity uh, and inclusion, water, clean oceans, lowering poverty, lowering hungry, hunger, uh, etc. Now, many of these things, as you say, have been looked at or thought about in isolation, haven't they? Do they become sometimes a, a top priority, very much the, the zeitgeist? But as you say, there is incredible breadth, isn't there, when a leader and organisation start to consider sustainability? Correct. And I think part of the reason for a lot of inaction over the last 20 years was the fear, the overwhelming sense of, well, I can't change the entire world. How am I going to do this? No, you need to pick your spots as a company and as a leader and just jump in on the journey of action. And I think that's what's changed in the last three or four years. I'm keen to know how it became the focus for you. I wrote a book a couple of years ago. I know that it's that's tough stuff to write a book. And so why was this topic, sustainable leadership, with all of the work that you do and, and the years of wisdom that you bring, how comes this became the book for you to write? So in, in 2019, a woman named Lisa Kingo ran United Nations Global Compact. That's the private enterprise aspect of these of sustainability with the United Nations. Right. She said, I have the opportunity on June of 2020 to explain to the world how much progress we've made in 20 years of the Millennium Goals. How did I get this job? And why have we not made that much progress? And in a chat, which is the first chapter of the book, sitting uh, in a snowy day, uh, 
we, we came to the point of saying, you know, what? it's about leadership. Okay, governments have backed off. They're not going to be able to do this. This is about private sector leadership and ultimately partnerships. So the question was, and we spent research, Russell Reynolds, United Nations, then spent a year doing research, were the most successful sustainable pioneers at that time. We interviewed 55 CEOs. Right. And we said, are they different from merely successful CEOs? So is a sustainably successful different? And guess what they were? And we boiled it down to four competencies that they spiked on, and we wrote a paper about it. The paper was so well-received, and boards of directors were saying, how do I find those people, develop them or identify them, that we said, actually, let's write a book that will teach executives what to do, what to look for, and hopefully accelerate to tens of thousands of sustainable leaders. Now, I'm sure without a doubt that some listeners have thought, hang on, you just mentioned four competencies. Because one of the questions I was going to ask was just how important now is sustainability a competency in a modern day leader? And I think I'm hearing from you, it is, it really is. But you mentioned four. Clark, could you just briefly run through those four? Because I think we've probably piqued the listener's interest already on that. Yeah, four of them. And they're differentiating. Okay. The first is a mouthful. We call it multi-level systems thinking. What is that? It's about complexity, more simply. The, my company, my business is already complex in operations, and we need to layer into environmental, societal, and community issues in life. So great leaders can conceptually understand the depth of complexity that it has to run a more sustainable business as it relates to the communities of their supply chains or their locations of of their environmental impact and societal impact. So number one is complexity, and we test around conceptual thinking. The second is stakeholder inclusion. That's an old phrase. What does it really mean? It means, will you include your competitors or your regulators or your employees to solve a sustainable issue? And that takes guts. Uh, And it also takes followership to say, you know what, Uh, if I'm going to solve a a business A, that doesn't add value in my business, in my industry. We can do this with others who who I compete with or bring the regulator in early. And that's where the courage piece comes in, isn't it, Clark? Gotcha. Okay. So that's number two. Yep. And then the third is disruptive innovation. Innovation's heavily used word. Disruptive innovation is actually questioning as a leader. And in a more hierarchical industry, leaders tend to say, I've got the experience. I know the answers. That's why I'm the chief executive. We're saying, can you actually challenge your own beliefs? Or when you fail, can you say, okay, I've got to look at this around the backside again to be to disrupt your own thinking, not just the processes of your company. There's an element of humility there, isn't there, Clark, of someone very senior saying, hang on, I, I don't have all the answers here. Well, great pick. We think humility and listening skills, which I'll come back to in a minute, uh, are in, in, in all these executives I have met around the world from Singapore and China to Scandinavia to yep. San Francisco, phenomenal listening skills. And that brings to the fourth one, long-term okay. activation, which is saying when one is hit with failure, and there are a bunch of examples we all know, we learn best from failure, not from success. The book gives a lot of examples of failure. Long-term activation is saying, I'm so committed when I hit the wall or I fail and I got to go back to the investors in the boardroom and say it didn't work, but we're going to break it down, see where it failed and keep moving. 
So this sense of of continuity long beyond what's there. And you can we test for these. We explain how to test for them. You interview them. You see track record of performance. These four competencies uh, really define. And, and the last thing I mentioned that the overarching thing we talk about is a phrase we have called LQ. We all know IQ as a child. How smart are you? EQ, are you a good leader? We believe LQ, that, that the great leaders are learning alongside younger people in the company because sustainability is moving so quickly in all aspects of sustainability that high LQs as an individual I can keep learning, as a culture will keep learning, has really differentiated the companies who win and the executives who win and have impact. Clark, love that. LQ. I, I'm adding that almost to my collection because you say we've got IQ and got EQ. And I remember doing a lot of work, which was out in the public domain with MasterCard about DQ, decency quotient. Yes. And I'm going to come on to this whole principle of a leader in an organization being a force for good. So that unequivocally answers my question that this is actually now a core competency of a leader in a modern day environment, certainly in a post-pandemic environment. And just so I've got it absolutely correct and helping the, the listeners too, those four elements you spoke about, one was multi-level systems thinking, two, stakeholder inclusion, three, disruptive innovation, and four, long-term activation. I've got that right, haven't I, Clark? 100%, perfect. That's brilliant. Let me ask you another, and this is great because we're, we're, we're adding value already straight away. I want to ask you this question that I think always comes up where some people say, how do you balance profit and sustainability? How, how can we be profitable, but also be sustainable? And some people think that there's a tension there and others seem to find that it fits neatly hand in glove. What are your thoughts in relation to, is it a balance profit and sustainability or is it a, a simple transition from one to another? I don't know. What are your thoughts? Yeah. So they're not two different things. Okay. Uh, it's not either or, but and, okay? okay, which is an often used phrase. But if you've embedded in whether it's Duke Energy, America's largest utility, Heineken Beer, OCBC, the Singaporean bank, uh, Maersk Shipping, they have embedded in their culture of the company and their operations sustainability in the long term. So we're not trying to turn more profit last quarter or this quarter. But we're saying we have to alter our processes, alter the people we look for, which we just talked about, yeah. the people we develop. Um, it's embedded. It's not, oh, I'm going to run my company and make as much money as we can, and then I'm going to try and feel good about sustainability. And wh what I would say is that, that while we, people ask, you know, in a, in a recession or a tough economy, are things going to get cut back? Listen, the externalities are priced into companies. The externalities are priced into the companies. So the markets have said, we will value more highly long-term sustainably run companies. Number two, the private equity world, which have higher risk-adjusted returns in public equities. Right. Seven of the 10, 10 largest private equity firms over the last couple of years have very quietly had added heads of sustainability for their operations. They're saying institutional investors have valued this and we think if we can improve our company's operations sustainably, there's a higher valuation. So this is very embedded. It's not a trade-off anymore. This is actually a non-negotiable, which is what I'm, is. I'm hearing loud and clear. Now, I'm hoping there are people listening to this that will pick up on this who maybe are transitioning. They're transitioning into a new organization. They're transitioning maybe into a, a new leadership challenge. Maybe they're taking the ultimate role. 
within an organization, what is the first question they should be asking themselves? Maybe if they are going in with a, a humility and curiosity, uh, wanting to know more about the organization or the department division that they're running, what should be that, that paramount question for them, Clark, to, to get things going? They don't have all the answers, but how can they get the process going? What, what if this division of the company or the company, yep. what are their commitments to sustainability? And by the way, commitments is probably two or three things, not 17 goals of solving <laughs> all the world's, world's problems. So what are they committed to? And are they measuring their action over multiple years? That's it. That's it. And, and, and the journey starts with one step, not a marathon. Now, so that's a simple starting point. Again, I want to ask you a question, maybe from your experience. I know you do a lot of work with boards as well, and, and yeah. in some ways privileged because you get to have a look under the, the bonnet or, or hood. <laughs> we wanted to, to, and, you, and you see the workings and the mechanisms of different organizations and different leadership teams in different sectors. Are there some myths still bouncing around the boardroom around sustainability, Clark? I think, uh, have you done some of your research, haven't you, where it's probably, uh, it trips off the tongue, but I bet you there are some myths still flying around. Yeah, so a couple of things. One, that sustainability is only climate change. Right. Okay, I think that's the biggest one. Uh, and it, it is where we started before. It's much broader, deeper than that, number one. Number two, if I recruit, a, and I think this is not going away. Right. Like digital transformation, if I recruit a, quote, sustainable director, are we good? I think most of the sophisticated boards say this is an, this is a learning quotient moment for the boardroom that we all must understand the implications of sustainability for this company so we're good governors. It's not so a tick best, box, is it? It's not a, put it's a, not a tick box, director, it's not a single tick. person. Right, gotcha. Yeah, it's not a single person. So the boards themselves are going through a pretty significant learning phase about how this applies to their people and retaining the best people, to their supply chains, to their carbon footprints, to their equality in the boardroom, to where they ship and how they ship, the, the full element of how sustainability affects the company. Gotcha. And Clark, I'm assuming because of the way you described it, this isn't a, a compliance piece, this isn't a single person, because you're talking about behaviors, you're talking about culture, aren't you, within an organization to actually embrace sustainability almost as part and parcel of their dna is, is that a fair comment yeah that's that is the goal that's the goal actually that it's embedded in the corporate dna and and those who volunteer back to your a little bit earlier question if you're in this book is really focused as much on the developing leaders this is an accelerant to your career right now so your ability to put your hand up and say i want to be part of that initiative or or Okay, boss, measure me about about what I do in the next two years around our sustainable operations. That's how it is a fast path. Now, if people weren't convinced already in relation to the importance of this, uh, I think they'd be hard pushed not to. I also want to link this to talent. Uh, you mentioned previously about millennials, I think, and I know uh, a very good pal of mine wrote a book, and I think he said by 2025, 75% of the workforce will be millennials. And obviously, there's been this great debate about attracting, identifying and retaining great talent. The pandemic has thrown a curveball to many people. I also spoke to Tony O'Driscoll, who's a professor at, at Duke Fuqua. And he, he used a phrase on me, Clark, that I just want to repeat back to you. He said, meaning is the new money. Help mm. me understand now the link and power of sustainability to attract that young talent that is going to be the lifeblood 
of our workforces going forward? How attractive and essential is this for them? Well, I think it's core to the whole thing. What is the number one topic on their minds? It happens to be the climate, which is, again, only one piece of sustainability. But, you know, they'll walk with their feet or they don't believe in the company that they work for. Uh, and I have uh, three daughters in the workforce in their mid-20s. Right. And purpose couldn't be more important to them. And they're willing to bust their backsides working very long hours in a company they believe in. So I see it in my own house. And, and we wrote a chapter in the book. We didn't think about it in the beginning. We wrote it at the end called The Nudgers. Okay. And it's about millennials and about what they see, what they do, and how they do it. So it's not a cliche. They, they actually, there's an amazing divide, sadly, of the chief executives. We did a survey called Divides and Dividends, a survey of the chief executives very proud of all they're doing. And we surveyed the employees of the same executives companies who said they're not doing enough. Okay. Right. So there's a divide between the perception and the reality. So t- part of this book is to tap the energy brain power of the millennials and others to make progress faster because they'll jump in. You know, Clark, I want to stick on this point because I'm going back to the the four-point list you gave us and I'm thinking about stakeholder inclusion where you, you've got to bring in the competitors, uh, you've got to bring in the regulator, the employees to really, really have that rich debate and understand maybe what the naysayers are, are saying. Mm-hmm. Tell me a little mm-hmm. bit more about companies who are getting this right. They're, they're getting the connection right or the communication right. So the the elder uh, generation yes, are yes, really connected yeah. to and i've got a couple of teenagers <laughs> i'm i'm with you i've got two teenagers as well and and they tell me that i'm 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 dull and i'm disconnected but there we go that's feedback i'm just gonna have to live with from them but i i want to know who's getting this who's getting this right clark who was who was crossing over the divide because i also spoke to another wonderful guest who said we're about to have five generations in one workforce that's mm. complex in itself Who's getting this right? How are they doing that, Clark? Yeah, so some examples. Um, I, I would look at um, Heineken, okay. where there's a story in the book, and, and Blanca, I got a text from this morning, a young woman who joined in, in uh, Monterey in their brewery and was very active in setting up a circular uh, use of resources and, and is now in Amsterdam helping run circularity globally. Right. Um, because they had a contest Heineken did, the board of Heineken about seven or eight years ago under the new CEO, Dolph, who uh, was in Mexico for a while, their largest brewery operation outside Europe. Um, and the, the contest was global to say, how can we change our operations, our footprint, uh, our use of resources? Uh, and Blanc had an idea uh, and it worked. And ultimately, you know, she gets promoted several times, is, is now working in Amsterdam. So I think there's things like that uh, happening out there. Uh, we talk a lot about mayors shipping and how they look at um, clean clean engines and they're involving more people. We look at, um, I would say, Pepsi. We look at Morgan Stanley. Uh, we look at uh, uh, OCBC in Singapore, how they reacted to the pandemic. You know, there are great examples of companies all over the world that have been fabulously successful. Natura, which is the Brazilian company, has this dynamic workforce that loves to work for this company. 
uh, they bought the body shop um, and, and, and they bought Avon okay. and how they brought three different organizations into one culture. But the culture is based around kind of changing the world and changing the approach using sustainable uh, strategies. You know, th- th- this is a fired up com- set of companies uh, under the Natura brand now that we can learn a lot from. So you're mentioning big businesses, household names that are, are getting this right. And, and let's be honest, we've still got to, as a business, always be sustainable in, in yes. order to grow and offer opportunity for the people who work within our organizations to grow. But he also used a phrase as well, which really resonates with me, and that's we've got to, we've got to provide a better world, haven't we, for those behind us? And so it's an I'm, obligation. It's, it's an obligation. I'm with you, Clark. It really is. Tell me a little bit about. I'm going. I'm going all over the place a little bit now because I'm passionate about this. But tell me a little bit about your thoughts on leaders being a force for good and organisations always almost having more power than governments to create a better world. Because that's why this is so important. Just tell me your thoughts on that. Yeah. So, so it's not just the companies, but the communities in which we operate. Right. And then the supply chains around the world, which support the company in 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 Frankfurt or Stuttgart or Cleveland yeah. or or Shanghai. So, I think we um, tend to think of companies as the headquarters. Uh, and in fact, you know, companies, whether they're startups, and we did a chapter on startups as well, uh, whether it's startups or whether it's big global corporations is the ability to engage at a community level and then say to your supply chain, which is now happening, listen, if you wanna work with us, here are our expectations of of your operations and your involvement in your community. You can change the world. You can change the world if you're saying, if you're gonna be part of my corporate ecosystem, then here's how we're gonna operate. Here Here are our expectations. And that's the compelling narrative, isn't it? That the younger generation, your kids, my kids, that's what they want to hear, isn't it? And sure. and and experience. I have and to see it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Other than yeah. I'm sure there are examples of when they hear it and then they get there and then there's the lack of congruence as well. Um, but it's important for out of doubt. Um, top companies who are getting this right. Talk to me a little bit about the kind of the value that they're seeing. And I'm, I'm not just talking about revenues now, but you know, what do you, what do you, what feedback well, do you get from organizations? You look at um, Solvay Chemicals, uh-huh. chemical business, okay, chemical business. But as they work in small towns in Africa, back to the ecosystem far extension, they've gone to these small towns uh, and, and they're teaching them different ways around agriculture to have better harvests, more bountiful harvests, and also to empower women who are mostly in charge of the harvest right. uh, about what they can do around microfinance, et cetera. Mahindra steel. Okay. Steel, the, one of the uglier businesses in the world, Mahindra steel has, has figured out a, a number of things about cleaner businesses, battery businesses, storage businesses, and using some of the profitability to improve communities in India. Uh, so there's a, there's a variety of issues where they've said it's not just the headquarters and not having plastic bottles uh it's it's where we can make a difference um yara the fertilizer company in norway you know huge users of ammonia big emitter of methane have said we're going to clean ourselves up first uh and then we're going to go out to our partnerships and ecosystems and they're trying to both lower their uses of certain uh, resources, um, particularly ammonia, and they're using it to create clean methanol with Mayersk for clean shipping. 
And then they're giving better advice to farmers in Africa to have more productive harvests. And as Fenn, the CEO says, Clark, we have eight harvests left before things are irreversible. That'll focus the brain, eight yeah. harvests. Okay. Wow. So that does, doesn't so, it? Yeah. So they're saying, I got to clean up my act. That's on me. But while I'm cleaning up my act and I'm working with other partners to see how else we can work together, shipping airlines, government of Singapore, creating this production facility in, in Singapore, one of the biggest shipping port in the world now. Um, I'm also going to put the science to work to teach farmers how to use cleaner fertilizer more productively in Africa to produce more food. You see, Clark, what I'm listening to as you're explaining that is actually these organizations having the courage to role model it. Yeah. Role model what it is that they're actually asking others to do and achieve. And so with that in mind, let, let's also be fair that we're working with people and people are problematic sometimes. What are some of the common blockers that leaders might expect to face or that you've seen in some of your research? How can we help people understand maybe some of those common barriers? Yeah. So, so I say one of the issues is I call it the hundred percenters. Okay. And the hundred percenters want to know they've solved all the issues, figured out all the obstacles, made sure they've got the buy-in of everybody and their certainty before going forward. Well, guess what? They don't go anywhere because you can't have a hundred percent. So versus what I call the moonshotters, which are, I can't solve all the problems of the world, but I've got to start on my first problem or my first opportunity and I'm going to go for it. Right. So the first step is just taking action. So, so you can't be a hundred percenter and start solving sustainable issues. The second is what we call the fence sitters. There's a <laughs> right. bunch of people in every organization. They don't say a word. They sit there and say, well, if this works, I'm all in and glad you stepped forward. If it doesn't work, I'm going to jump off the fence and say, I told you so. Pull them off the fence and say, are you in or are you out? Because we have to keep moving. So don't be a hundred percenter. Watch out for the fence sitters. I'm making notes feverishly as you're telling me that. Uh, <laughs> I, I love that. It's always like <laughs> so many organizations uh, is the lawyer in me. I speak to, to a lot of professional services firms who always say, yeah, we're quite happy to be the first follower. Um, maybe not the first off the fence itself. Let's um, listen. There is so much in this. Let's talk a little bit about your your new book, which is Sustainable Leadership. Tell the listeners a little bit about that book and also where they can get a copy. Yes. So um, it launches on the twentieth, uh, a week from tomorrow. And this is uh, ha these examples we just talked about, and it's a guide for chief executives to take action. And it is a guide for young business executives to say, what do I do? At the end of every chapter, we have takeaways, which is what do I do this week, this month, this year, or on this project? Uh, and at the end, we also included a, a chapter about startups. It's not just about making big elephants dance, but um, how are the startups, whether it's in a shampoo business called Hair Story in New York or green steel manufacturing in, in Northern Sweden? Um, so it is it is a very simply a, a which might be kind of boring to the to the theorists of the world. It is a how to become a sustainable leader and accelerate your career. So we get tens of thousands of sustainable leaders in the world making progress. Clark, another question for you. How can people get in touch with you if they want to continue the conversation, get you involved in their conversation or get some advice from you? Because this is a hot topic for them. How do they do Clark, that? 
Clark.Murphy at RussellReynolds.com. Just go to the Russell Reynolds Associates website and I'm right there. There you go. Easily done. I'd love to engage. This is the whole point. Get people engaged. Well, there you go. That was easy enough to get hold of you. Um, let me ask you an unfair question. Now, with I now I know you how much experience you've got in in the leadership world. So what's the most compelling piece of leadership advice that comes to mind for you that you've given someone or you've received at some point in time? What floats to the top? A couple of things. One, and I, and this is cliched, I know. Nothing Take wrong action. with a cliche. Stop, stop reading and thinking and worrying about where do I start? Just start on something. Pick pick one thing and take action, number one. Number two, you talked about professional services. The best piece of advice I've ever received, I said to someone who I greatly admire, and a very successful executive, um, about 20 years older than I am. And I kept coming back to this, this terrible phrase of, you know, I'm trying to herd cats. And he finally said, Clark, stop it. If you can't herd cats, then you're not a leader. Move the cat food and the cats will follow. <laughs> I love that. What a great way to actually finish the episode. That's a great nugget, it really is. Clark, listen, I hope you've enjoyed coming on and being a guest on the Leadership Enigma. Well, I've enjoyed it, and I hope we've lit a few sparks out there that, that get people moving around sustainable leadership. Well, I hope so, and I'm pretty sure we have done. As I say, this is a, a big topic, but we've wet the appetite, and maybe we've given some people some things to think about, and they know where to go for some further wisdom. So thanks for being a superstar. 100%. Thank you. Join us again next week for more tips and strategies on the Leadership Enigma. We'd love to hear your comments on today's show, as well as suggestions for future topics and guests. Get in touch with your host on LinkedIn or our YouTube channel. And remember to get your daily learning to build success at www.insights.emeritus.org. Download the Insights app and start learning for free. Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on all your major podcast platforms. Thanks for listening.